Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. Um, any questions before we get going? All right, I will uh, try and be peppy and upbeat and not too nasally. I apologize again for my ugh, sickness. Wasn't a choice. All right. Um, we talked last time about the roads um, and the well-engineered uh, state-funded roads that um, both facilitated trade and military movement and the Postal Service and uh, the security on them. Great and wonderful things. Uh, that's the internal road structure, although they had roads going across the entire empire. Um, and we talked about how um, ox carts and other overland routes were considerably more expensive for every 100 miles traveled. You add a, about 50% to the cost of the, of the grain or whatever you're transporting. Uh, whereas by ship, because you can move a lot more weight with a lot fewer people and animals, uh, it's considerably cheaper, although perhaps slower and less direct, and depends on being next to a body of water that can take a ship. Um, these were extremely slow ships uh, that uh, moved by, uh, most of them moved by sail at like, I don't know, seven miles an hour or so, so quite slow. Um, there were, of course, military vessels um, that were rowed, um, and they traveled uh, a, lot more, uh, a lot more quickly. So here we can see the major um, sea routes between, this is Ostia, the port of Rome, and Carthage, or what yeah, used to be Carthage. Uh, there was still a strong connection between those two. And then um, the main port in the eastern Mediterranean was Alexandria, the Egyptian port. Um, where a lot of grain made its way to Rome. Um, and then, of course, through the Strait of Gibraltar out to what is now Spain, um, there was a major trade, and then up to the south of France, to Gaul, uh, as it was known then. Um, these are the major trade routes, although there were others in smaller or less thick lines, of course. Um, you can also see a lot of roads, right? So I had illustrated here, these are the main roads within Italy's heartland, but they built roads all the way throughout, and I think I think I had a current event last week that I shared about finding a crossroads all the way up here at one of the northernmost roads of the Roman Empire. Roads are a nice way for us as archaeologists to get an idea of um, relationships between these places because you're not going to build a road unless you think you're going to save a lot of time by having it. Um, you have to kind of do a cost-benefit analysis. If it takes you know, a crew of a hundred uh, workers, you know, a thousand person hours or, you know, a hundred person years or whatever it takes to build that road, you have to think, all right, is that going to save that much time in traveling faster with carts and cut down on uh, lost time in other places? And um, people would have, ha I don't know if they would have done exactly that sort of cost benefit analysis, but um, it had to be a pretty considerable connection between these places that are connected by roads, and that's a physical marker on the landscape that we can use that we otherwise wouldn't have seen. Um, of course, 
um, Rome was connected to what was to become the Silk Road. Um, it had just started to come into being as Rome declined. Um, but uh, Rome was already getting all kinds of stuff from the east, like um, spices, pepper, saffron, things like that, uh, myrrh, all these fancy eastern goods. Um, even silk made it in. And if you read the footnote in the reading this week, um, there's this uh, wonderful quotation from a Roman senator who is talking about how just scandalous it is that women wear silk dresses. And he says something to the effect of, by wearing this silk dress, anybody in the street has as much uh, intimate knowledge of this woman as her husband does. Right? Basically, he's saying they're walking around naked. Um, but I think in every, basically in every uh, generation of um, modern people, we've had people complaining about kids these days wearing not enough clothing and being young and enjoying being, you know, young adults and things. It seems like a perennial complaint, so I wouldn't give it too much weight. Um, but it's nice, and it's a good illustration of the how the trade across the entire uh, old world is now connected. Uh, there are depictions of Roman jugglers and Roman coins in China, so trade was going back and forth. Um, China actually was a really forward thing. I, I'm kind of bummed. Kind of bummed that the person in charge of this course didn't set aside time to talk about China. Uh, China is actually super interesting and in its own right, and had a ton of explorers. With like, even before this, China or um, after this, China has ships way larger and more complex um, than the ships that uh, Columbus took to sail to the New World. Hundreds of years earlier, China had much larger sh ships, much larger fleets, exploratory missions to go all around uh, the Indian Ocean. Um, and we don't talk about it. Like, it's just not a, a, a thing. Um, China is a really amazing um, country that has, it's, it's really basically another, you know, it's equivalent to Europe in size and diversity of people and uh, landscape. Uh, it cycles through uh, many periods of Success and failure, success and failure, success and failure. It's a really good example of, um, there's all kinds of great examples of collapse there that we probably could have talked about. So this is a drawing, uh, a schematic representation of Ostia, O-S-T-I-A, Ostia, the, the port of Rome. Rome itself did not have uh, a port where a big ship, you know, some of these ships were 40 meters long. So if you think about next time you're at a football game, Look at you know the zero yard line and look at the fifty yard line and that's about how large some of these ships were. That's pretty big for a society that you know everything's done by hand. That's pretty pretty good. Um, uh, they could have. Uh, do do do. I have a tonnage. No. Uh, but only a few harbors could um, take these uh, ships. Just like today we have Panamax, right? Uh, and Super Panamax. Um, ships that can not fit in the Panama Canal. That's basically what they came down to, right? They had ships that were so large they could only fit in a few ports like Ostia and Alexandria and Carthage. And so if you were shipping something to Rome, you would enter Ostia and then um, it, you'd land, you know, you'd pull up next to one of these wharves and they would unload your ship by hand. Um, 
and then they would put it into carts and move it to a barge on the Tiber, uh, the Tiber River, and then a barge would bring it up the 25 miles or whatever, or 25 kilometers to Rome. Um, and that's how it would actually reach Rome if you were sending something directly there. Otherwise, you could store it in a warehouse for another ship to um, pick it up and transship it somewhere else. Okay, boop, boop, boop. So in the beginning, uh, Rome was able to feed itself from its surroundings. It had uh, farmers uh, growing wheat and other staples in the Italian heartland. As they grew more powerful, they were able to demand or buy uh, wheat from the provinces, and it was a lot cheaper. Even though they had to transport it, it was still cheaper to bring in wheat from the provinces rather than grow their own wheat. Because, and so as the price of wheat fell, uh, people near Rome, who would have had higher cost of uh, living and higher cost of land, uh, that land would have been more valuable. They needed to get more money out of it than if they just grew wheat. So they converted a lot of the land around Rome and in the Roman heartland to uh, vineyards to grow grapes for wine and uh, olive orchards to make olive oil. Um, of course, this then is what's called a uh, technology trap, I guess you'd call it. Um, they were able to survive using the technology of long-distance transportation of staples, which is really unusual. Remember how basically with the Maya and the Mesopotamians, I've kind of emphasized that long-distance trade was only for uh, valuables, not for commodities? The Romans have such a strong trade network that they are able to import staples, which is super unusual. We do that too, but again, it's super unusual. And so they hollowed out their um, local subsistence or their local um, ability to sustain themselves and turned everything into a cash crop. Uh, we've done the same thing. Uh, we used to have a strategic grain reserve. So like there were silos on farms across the country that were specifically saved in case there was some sort of food shortage. Uh, the government paid farmers to save this grain. Well, in the 1980s under Reagan, they said, well, this is stupid. We have all this grain sitting in silos, and that grain could be sold. And then we could use that money, put it in the stock market, and make more money. And then with that more money, when there is a famine, we'll buy grain with it. That's not how it works, because a famine is when there's not enough food. So how are you going to buy it? Even if you do well on the stock market, which is a gamble, uh, <laughs> you have to buy it from somewhere. So anyway, uh, we have gotten rid of our, we've done similar things to Rome in that we have put ourselves completely at the mercy of importing uh, staples. So, hooray! Uh, Rome itself was dependent on about 200 ton, uh, excuse me, 200,000 tons of imported grain annually. Um, it's something uh, in the book I have it broken down uh, that you saw in the reading. It was like a kilo a person a day or something about like that, um, which is quite a lot of grain uh, or flour. People ate a lot of bread at this time. Um, it's probably comparable to the period of the French Revolution where people were eating about two pounds or one kilo of bread per day per person. So imagine eating two pounds of bread. Like, I don't know if anyone's on, what is it, Atkins or Paleo or carb or gluten sensitive or whatever. Yeah, but if, if you're eating two pounds of bread a day, that's where you're getting most of your calories. That's a lot of bread. 
And that's why um, there would have been riots when the grain shipments were delayed or um, imperiled. They um, actually had to spend a lot of their military um, money to suppress piracy on the Mediterranean Sea uh, so that their grain shipments would keep coming because if they didn't expend the military money to do that, bread prices would rise and people would riot. Not that we would ever expend military might on a resource that we import from somewhere else um, so that we can keep our own prices down. We would never do that. So silly Romans, what were they thinking? All right. Um, towns and villages, on the other hand, were largely self-sufficient, right? Uh, if 90% of the population is farmers, if you get to rural areas, that percentage goes up, right? So at, once you're outside the cities where most people are not farmers, that population might be 95 or even higher percentage depending on the size and makeup of your village. And so a lot of these people grew enough food for themselves. Obviously, there were fluctuations in everyone's situation um, locally and annually and things like that. But for the most part, people were self-sufficient. And then what they had as surplus, they gave and or sold uh, up the, the social chain um, as taxes or for profit. And uh, so they weren't in the rural areas, they, were not, they weren't really dependent on um, these foreign grain imports. I'm talking specifically about large cities, especially Rome. Now, Rome was able to pay for this infrastructure, all these roads. They were able to support their military. They were able to support these public work projects, which employed a lot of people who came into the city looking for work. They were able to subsidize the grain prices. They were able to do all this, not through taxes, on the entire area, although they did do that to some extent, but by expanding their empire. And as they expanded to ever farther areas and came in contact with other large groups, they would subjugate them and basically absorb a lot of uh, booty from war, right? They would take treasuries and things like that. So a lot of their uh, expansionary everything um, drove their economy. So eventually, uh, they became so large that they really, there was nowhere really to expand, right? This is desert. There's not as much, you have to cross a huge desert and it's not really worth it. Um, and then up here, you have a whole bunch of like barbarian tribes who aren't like, you can get land, but that's about it. They're not very uh, advanced civilizations with large cities or anything like that to take over. The large cities up here were actually made by the Romans, like Cologne, Germany, for example. Uh, Cologne is from Colonia, like because it was a colony. Um, and they were, you know, there's large empires over here that they would have had to fight pretty hard to win over, like uh, the Persians and things like that. So um, after a while, they stopped expanding, but they still had all this infrastructure that they had to maintain. And then they tried to raise taxes, and that pissed a lot of people off because, uh, just like us, nobody liked paying more taxes. Okay, so there were a lot of monocausal theories. People have been talking about the downfall of Rome since about, 15, uh, about 500 of the Common Era because people were living through it and they still, there, it wasn't, historians of Rome, like during Roman times, were not always 100% clear on why it was falling apart. If they knew why it was falling apart, maybe they would have stopped it. Maybe, hard to say. Um, but there were a lot of theories that have been advanced through the years. Um, in the uh, 
In the book, I gave you uh, kind of funny headlines uh, to illustrate these, like uh, smelly crude barbarians in the ranks weaken our fighting force. Right? So Rome allowed uh, a lot of conquered people, especially later in uh, history, in Roman history, Gauls, uh, or excuse me, uh, the Germanic tribes people were integrated into the army. And instead of being like made into Romans, they were allowed to retain a lot of their ethnic identity. And that very likely weakened fighting force because the Roman fighting force was very different than tribal fighting forces. Um, and so the military might have been weakened. Uh, other people have said, elites dumbed down by lead pipes. This is a pretty uh, great uh, thing. I mean, the Romans were so dumb, they used lead for drinking water pipes. What sort of society would do that? I mean, that's just ridiculous. Lead is a neurotoxin. It makes you dumb and violent. Like these are, <laughs> there's a great scientific consensus. Lead in, the, in your environment that you ingest makes you violent and dumb. So lead pipes cause the, that's another idea of why it would cause the collapse. Maybe that's why Michigan is collapsing. Womp, womp, womp. Not through uh, movement of uh, car manufacturing elsewhere. Nope, it's the lead pipes. That's going to be the next fun thing to explode in the United States is the amount of lead pipes that are available, or that are um, good on Madison for being proactive about that. Anyway, uh, intermarriage with foreigners weakens r real Romans. So again, uh, jingoistic or xenophobic um, ideas of you know wh what is a pure Roman, what is a European type person uh, was called into question because again, Rome, if you look back at the map, Rome is touching a lot of different ethnic groups, right? We have Celts, um, German Germanic people, Slavs over here, um, all the way down into Middle Eastern, Persians, and beyond, um, to Africans below, um, and North Africans here. I mean, there's a lot of different groups that are coming in contact with the Romans, who, again, remember, they've been in power for almost a 1,000 years in some way, shape, or form. So they might have some superiority complex. And when they bring in you know, a lot of people to this multicultural center, although they were pretty good at integrating multicultural people and making them into real Romans, uh, there's still, you know, racial theory was, I don't know if they had the exact same idea that we would have had of racial theory, you know, uh, early in the last century, but there would have been ideas of, hey, you look different, therefore you must be different sort of ideas, um, pretty common. Um, another monocausal theory could be disease brings down empire. Um, there were a, a number of different diseases that struck Remember, Rome uh, did not, even though they had uh, top-notch medical science for the time, that was 2,000 years ago, um, and they believed that disease was caused by an imbalance of the humors, which are four forces within your body that have to be balanced. Sometimes if you are sanguine, you have too much blood, so they have to let the blood out or you know, put, uh, what do you call it, uh, leeches on you, things like that. that. That whole thing, that's Roman medicine. Uh, although they did do surgeries and they did have people survive and they had, they even had like staples. They're really cool. Actually, I saw some staples on the ground. I'll just draw it. They had really cool battle staples. So like if you got cut on the battlefield from the side, these staples look like this. And so you would stick that end. If I had a cut here, I would stick the sh that end in here and then I would push the other end in on the other side so the wound would be held together like that. Pretty cool. 
Uh, so they had, you know, some neat um, medical stuff, but it was, you know, they didn't have germ theory. Um, and so disease was still pretty prevalent. Not that it's, you know, we're free from disease today, but much more so than back then. Um, and malaria uh, struck pretty badly um, in the wet times of year. They had smallpox sweep through and kill off large percentages of Rome, uh, Rome, the city proper, um, a couple of times. So disease may have weakened them as one theory. And then decadent elites undermine civic virtue could be another monocausal theory. Basically, everything became for the point of supporting the elites at the top, and the gap between the rich and the poor got wider and wider, and eventually um, the, those at the bottom stopped supporting those at the top, and it tumbled down. Um, so these are all, excuse me, uh, these are all possible monocausal reasons. And the nice thing is, there is a grain of truth to all of these. All of them are plausible and based on actual things that are going on. But saying that one thing caused the collapse of such a complex, large-scale, and successful society is not giving them enough credit. They were resilient. They lasted for quite a long time. I don't know, four or five, six hundred years, depending on how you want to count it. Um, so they, they were pretty successful, really, and they had to weather these storms before. They weathered disease. They weathered elite uh, overconsumption, things like that. So it's a lot of things together. So I'll mention um, climate and its connection to trade, right? So remember uh, the Roman warm period, oh, excuse me, Roman warm period was at the same time that Rome was extremely successful. And as that temperatures, as the temperatures dropped and the precipitation became less reliable, so too did Rome's um, fortunes. And that's not to say that that's the only reason Byzantium in the east continued to flourish for years, so for centuries. So it wasn't just this that caused the downfall, but this would have destabilized um, some, uh, their system, which would have made it even harder to you know, deal with the barbarians in your ranks or deal with you know, problems caused by lead pipes and things like that. Right. So it would have been a, another type of destabilization. Um, It's also worth pointing out that Rome had denuded, um, denuded its forests around Rome, so you would have had a lot of runoff. And then when, when this happened, they would have been um, pretty badly affected in their local economy because of the change in weather. Um, not weather, climate, sorry. So one. Um, Socially, uh, taxes were raised to continue to finance state projects, like I've mentioned before. Um, and raising taxes to support such a large infrastructure is never popular, especially when you're used to living high on the hog because of all the war booty that you otherwise had financed yourselves with. There was also, at this time, uh, Christianity became a much stronger force. Um, and I'm not saying it has anything to do with Christianity specifically. I'm not here to say if it wasn't perhaps if they had adapted Judaism or Islam wasn't around yet, uh, but if, or Buddhism, for example, who knows what they would have adopted. Uh, but the fact that there was a large religious minority that suddenly became a favored group by the Emperor Constantine, remember on his deathbed, he saw a cross in the sky and converted and then got better and then converted the whole shebang to Christianity. Um, 
would have that major disruption. Uh, a formerly repressed minority suddenly being made that it would be, it would almost be akin to today if, like, our current president was on his deathbed and he converted to Islam and then he recovered and then he's like, all right, we're going to become an Islamic nation. Like, <laughs> that's kind of the level of what happened. So, not that. I don't necessarily, um, at this point, I'll expect anything could happen. I'm not going to say that that couldn't happen because everybody who said President Trump couldn't do something was, has been wrong. So that could happen, I'm just saying. But that's more or less on the level of what happened back then. This repressed minority that had been like scapegoated and sacrificed and like meh, suddenly became top dog. Like that's, that's a big deal. Um, emperors also were really worried about naming successors because if I say, okay, if I die, Dirk, you get to take over the class and you get my huge paycheck, <laughs> um, you know, maybe Dirk's going to knock me off. Like, you know, I'll get a stab in the back as I'm walking out of the room or something, right? So emperors didn't want to uh, name their successor for fear that their successor would have them killed. So uh, when the successor, or excuse me, when the emperor died, there was no one there who was like supposed to step in. They didn't have a next in line sort of thing. So when the person died, there was a mad scramble for the top and some disarray and some upheaval. This was especially bad in later periods of Roman history when they cycled through like 40 emperors in 20 years or something crazy like that. It, it was not really good. Um, you know, when a president is assassinated or attempted to be assassinated, our economy tanks. Uh, same thing, but over and over and over. Um, <laughs> the, as the empire aged, its defenses also aged. And because they did, weren't expanding, they had less money to keep up their defenses, which would have compounded problems with you know, uh, a more diverse uh, army population. We can even go back to world systems theory, which I talked about before. And remember I talked about the core and the periphery and how the core brought in cheap labor and raw materials and they made high profit consumption goods and sold them to the periphery. And this is one way, one lens that we can look at Rome. Right, they were importing, um, or excuse me, they were um, they had turned themselves into like a high value production area, making wine and and olive oil and uh, also social control sorts of things that they would then export to the and control uh, the periphery with. Well, over time, you know, like I said earlier, people in France realized they could make pretty good wine, and people in Greece realized they could make really good leather and. All these different provinces around them decided to specialize in certain economic things. And then instead of trading through Rome, they just traded amongst themselves and could leave Rome out of the mix. So it kind of hollowed out their, the economics of their empire. Um, not that we would do that, right? America is still producing just as much as before. We haven't, uh, we haven't outsourced our production, right, to other parts of the world, right? I'm being facetious, obviously. if people who spend so much time making consumption goods for us realized and revolted and said, why don't we just make this stuff and then keep it? <laughs> and then we're, we're going to be SOL because we, we're, where are we going to get our iPhones from? Ah. Um, you know, no parallels. OK. Um, so the hubris here comes in where, obviously, Rome is a very proud 
um, and defiant and decadent sort of society, right? They valued themselves very highly. They figured they were very moral. They were very powerful, right? And it's easy to see why they would say our way or the highway because that's kind of how they took over this whole empire. And it was successful for a long time. And it's hard to stop using an old model that's been successful for a long time and do something new. This is why, for example, we have so much, this is one reason, for example, why we have a lot of problems today with like, you know, the coal miners. They're like put out as political pawns nowadays because it's not that we're moving away from coal because that is one reason why the coal mines of Appalachia are in massive economic decline. But it's because we've changed how we mine coal. Now we do surface mining, and they make these giant, they look like giant playthings. They're huge, huge trucks, and they just plow up the coal and put it in a giant uh, thing in the back and drive it. It's like one person driving this amazing machine. Um, look up a documentary on mountaintop coal removal, and it's, it's like five guys, and they'll do as much work as like hundreds of coal miners who have to go down, and it's more complicated, whatever. That's what stopped, that's what's made the coal miners' economic woes suck. That and yeah, we are moving away from coal, but we're still producing a heck of a lot of coal, but with like five guys, right? So being upset about the loss of those coal jobs is similar to the Romans being upset about the decline of their economic model. Hey, this worked for so long. Generations of us ran our empire this way. Generations of my family worked in the coal mines, and it worked well, and we were able to support a family, and they can't now. This sucks. Let's not change and do something different. No, 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 let's double down and keep holding on to what we had. Uh, not going to happen. Uh, so Rome was not able to sustain itself uh, because it was no longer expanding. Its economic model wasn't working anymore. Um, and obviously, people, I read a lot of people who said, you can't compare Rome to us today. And I, I lay one out in the book that was, I thought, particularly good. Um, so he would say, uh, this author said that uh, we weren't like Rome because we have better communications and technology, and, which is true. Uh, but that also means we have more problems. Uh, we have, it's, it's a benefit. It's a double-edged sword, right? It's a benefit, and it's a negative. Um, and while we know more things and we have access to more information, we also are able to transmit diseases. And uh, when we have an economic problem, right? when we cough, China gets a cold sort of thing, um, the global um, economic system is linked around the world. So uh, it, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, they also say it was a smaller empire, which is true, but we also have faster transportation. So really, the world, you might have heard the world is shrinking, right? Because you can get just about anywhere in the world. If money was no object, you could get just about anywhere in the world in most places you could get in 24 hours. If you had you know, a private jet, whatever, you could do whatever you wanted. Uh, other places, maybe 48 hours. You'd fly somewhere in a private jet, take a helicopter, right? There are very few places you can't get on the surface of the Earth pretty quickly. So we're a larger empire, larger global civilization, but we're, we're still well connected. Um, they had death matches. That's true. We don't have death matches. However, um, how many of us go to car racing in hopes of seeing a really fast car? Yeah, I think most people are going there to see a car flip over. Um, maybe not. Maybe that's just me. Uh, <laughs> military glory is a top social achievement. It's true for both of us, I think. 
um, you know, people of all political stripes, no matter what they, you know, every politician will uh, unconditionally support the troops sort of thing, right? Uh, fractious political parties, well, that's completely different. We wouldn't have that. Um, lack of counterbalancing in the world power. Perhaps uh, things are shifting. China will become more powerful, or maybe Russia will be resurgent. Who knows? But right now, there's kind of uh, not, it's a unipolar world, right? So there are, I think, a lot of similarities. Now, whether or not, you know, we're, we obviously have different problems, um, but whether or not we're going to be able to adapt our social and economic situation to the world that changes around us and the world that we make it be, I don't know. That's a question for, that's a question for the future. So um, I, I can't prognosticate. I don't know. Um, but Rome certainly had um, an eye and uh, knowledge of what was happening to it, but they weren't able to proactively adapt to what was happening around them from changes in the, in the economy, in the military, in the environment, in the agricultural system, in their social world. Um, and you know, it just made them more fragile. So when uh, things happened, invasion, I haven't even mentioned invasion by the Visigoths or the Goths or the other barbarians. I haven't even mentioned those, which were really super common and um, popular theories about the fall of Rome being invaded. Well, it's not that Rome fell to barbarians coming in uh, for no reason. They couldn't collapse because um, they were invaded if they were still had a strong military or a strong economy or a strong uh, social system that kept them together. They wouldn't have collapsed from some dumb uh, barbarians invading. That wouldn't have happened. They would have been able to repel them. So there was a lot of underlying stuff happening that allowed them to collapse um, for a variety of reasons altogether. It's complicated. And that's all I have for Rome. And that's about all I have in the tank. I'm hoping I'll feel better by Friday. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.